previously on Fearless. Basically around the world, everybody knows Labak. In the cotton industry, everybody, you can go anywhere in the world, they know it. Texas Tech researchers are using the region's most prominent resource to fuel innovative change that could make a global impact. In 21 days, you can see that it starts to degrade. And the research behind how a professor is attempting to help save the environment by transforming cotton waste into biodegradable single-use plastic. If you bury it in the soil and then leave it in there, 30 days or, or two months, it's completely gone. We need to do research to create plant varieties that can produce the same with less water. One important thing is that we need to find a stronger interaction with the farmer. According to the Alzheimer's Association, it's estimated that more than 6 million Americans have dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease. Today, it's the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. It kills more seniors than breast and prostate cancer combined. The scope of this disease is vast, impacting not only the ones who suffer from it, but the family members who watch it take hold. Its impact is widespread, and it's something that's captured the personal and professional attention of a researcher on campus determined to find a cure. Vijay Hegde's lab is on the fourth floor of the Human Sciences Building. Through a glass door reading nutritional sciences. On this day, it's filled with students wearing lab coats and glasses, transferring a clear liquid from a long syringe-looking device into small test tubes lined on a reflective metal tabletop. He's walking around, monitoring and overseeing their progress as they work. He's happy to welcome me into the lab. His excitement for his work and mentorship is contagious. He tells me that he's proud to be part of this particular season of the podcast and thrilled for the chance to share with people the work that has occupied his life for nearly a decade. At the start of, and even through most of his career, he didn't see himself as a professor. He wanted to be a researcher. He wanted to investigate things. And he did that for years, becoming connected with Texas Tech professor Nikhil Durander at one of the top nutritional sciences labs in the world, located in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then when Dr. Durander was offered a chair position here, I moved with him here. This decision launched him into a new adventure, teaching for the first time and pursuing a different type of research, studying obesity and exploring a connection between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. A few years ago, I want to say about six, seven, eight years ago, there were more reports coming out about the strong association between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. And so that was kind of new. It was like, if you are diabetic, you are two to three times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. The connection between these two is glucose levels. Vijay says it's understood in this research that the development of Alzheimer's is a product of hypometabolism, or less glucose going to the brain. That's when I was like, okay, uh, we have a protein that works independent of insulin. Insulin seems to be the major player in this situation between diabetes and Alzheimer's. Why don't we try to look into that? There was uh, a, a new grant opportunity, like a seed pilot funding kind of opportunity designed by the president's office. They applied for it and received the funding they needed to continue searching. They connected with the researcher at the Garrison Institute of Aging, part of the Texas Tech Health Sciences Center. 
His area of focus is dementia, like Alzheimer's and Huntington's disease. So his expertise provided another layer of understanding to this study. And that's when we uh, submitted that, uh, this idea of you know, looking into how if we improve diabetes or glucose metabolism, would that help in Alzheimer's disease? As their work continued to grow, they submitted a proposal to the National Institutes of Health with the idea that maybe treating Alzheimer's in two different areas of the body would have an overall effect on the disease. We are talking about the diabetes area and we're talking about the brain area. So if we are targeting only the periphery or the brain, we are not seeing you know, benefits. So what if we tried both places? Would that be an effective treatment option or something that would help? And that was the idea that I proposed in this grant mechanism, and that's what we got funded for. The grants that Dr. Durandar and Dr. Hegde have gotten... This is Cameron Smith uh, with the Office of Research Commercialization. He helps ensure discoveries like this one are protected by patents. They help move that the research forward, and we're moving the, the patent portfolio, growing that. Then we're working to license that patent portfolio and the right to use it out to industry so that uh, our industry partner can then you know, go through clinical trials, um, do, do patient testing, and actually get something to market. As Vijay and his research partners continue to pursue a cure for this disease, they're getting the help and protection they need from people like Cameron. It's his job to ensure that all intellectual property developed by these researchers can't be stolen or fabricated. I can't emphasize enough the potential impact of this research. Part of the reason this work is so fulfilling to Vijay is because he's using his own discoveries to create change for people living with the disease and their families. So here's the thing. I mean, with, with Alzheimer's disease, more and more we uh, come to know about it. It is affecting more families. You can speak to many people and you will immediately get response that, oh, my grandmother, my aunt or my, you know, father-in-law. His passion was taken to a new level when he got a call from his own mother in 2017, three years after he started this research. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Again, initially we didn't know it was Alzheimer's. We were like, okay, he's just forgetting things. And of course, like, I mean, my uh, parents lived in India. Me and my siblings live here in the U.S. So obviously we don't have a daily connection in a way where we are able to observe him to know what's going on. BJ's mom was the protector and primary caregiver for his dad, which is common. The Alzheimer's Association says that around 11 million people provide unpaid care for people with Alzheimer's, most of them family members. She wouldn't tell us all the details because, okay, we are all here uh, thousands of miles uh, away. She doesn't want to get us worried. So she didn't quite tell us until, you know, things got really bad. And, and then, of course, we were seeing all of the patterns of that, you know, Alzheimer's patients go through, like you will see uh, behavioral patterns that you've never seen from an individual like that. Families were shocked that, oh my God, my mom's acting like that, you know, saying things that they've never heard coming out of their mom's mouth. That's how that disease affects people. He says that one day while his mom was asleep, his dad simply walked out of the house and wandered around for a while. He returned with a story that he'd been invited to breakfast at his cousin's house. And God knows, in which year that was, like, you know, kind of thing. He passed away in 2018, and uh, right before he passed away, I uh, had a couple months before that, I had gone to see him because kind of knew that this would be it. So at that point, it was pretty much like he wasn't that person that I have known all these years. It was like he didn't even recognize me. It was sobering for him. 
but he returned to his work with a renewed sense of understanding and purpose. There are people in my own life who have or have had Alzheimer's, people in my family who've lost the ones they love to this slow fade of memory. I tell Vijay that I want to share what he's doing with people, that their progress deserves recognition, and he smiles. He says that it could help a lot of people, and it inspires me in that moment that his real motivation is the rest of us. In my backyard, we have an enormous oak tree. Its huge trunk supports dozens of long, full branches with leaves that cast shade on our whole backyard. One evening last spring, I noticed a low, vibrating buzz emanating from its center. My normally energetic and excitable dog stood at attention, her ears flipped back and head cocked to the side, staring at a branch closest to our house. When I went to stand with her, I understood why. Hundreds of tiny black and gold bodies hovered and shook over a hive that I was certain had not been there the day before. When I look up through the branches of this 30-foot tree, I saw hundreds more. Bees had made their home seemingly overnight in my backyard. I had a bunch of questions. How and why does this happen? As it turns out, Texas Tech has a scientist who had those answers, and much more. So this is the Scott Longing's office is packed full of books, pamphlets, papers, and dozens of entomology boxes with various insects. I mean, it's not exactly the same species, but... Scott's childhood is painted with memories of creek digging, bike rides through the woods, yeah, and one imaginative exploration after another. But by the time that he went to college, these, he had chosen a different path. I was actually a pre-dental uh, major, <laughs> you know, rocking along on that track. I think I took the dental test and did all that. Anyway, my last year, I had an elective opportunity. I had to, a chance to have an elective course, and I didn't know what to take. He settled on entomology, and a passion for the study of insects began to take on a life of its own. And suddenly, dental school, well, that was off the table. So right now, we're, looking, we're documenting uh, bee biodiversity. So bees are a major pollinator. So we, right now, we're interested in what's out there, really. By the way, he's wearing a black hat with a yellow honeybee on the front. He picked it up at the Wolf Earth Farmer's Market. His reddish beard and long hair beneath his cap place him perfectly in a hiking magazine. It suits him, given that he spends so much of his time and work in the field. What we want to know is how do, how do human factors influence that biodiversity? So we're trying to figure out what those mechanisms are. Um, everything from habitat fragmentation to uh, pesticide exposure. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, all these bees, they're foraging, they're flying around, they don't discriminate between crops and wildflowers. So, you know, whatever we do to our crops can affect what, you know, what they pick up and... Pesticides yeah, they can they can pick up pesticides as they're foraging. You know. In West Texas, farmers regularly use chemicals like insecticides or pesticides to control insect infestations, diseases, and weeds. These practices have started to have an impact on bees that pollinate those crops. This has become important not only to beekeepers and researchers, but it's also led to conversations about public health. In a scholarly article, researchers found that if exposed to agrochemicals, consumers could be at risk. They tested more than 2,600 honey samples from 27 different countries and found that nearly all samples tested showed traces of various chemicals. So what does this all mean? Well, according to that article, if high levels of those chemicals are consumed, it could damage reproductive health in adults. 
Scott says that the U.S. upholds better pesticide regulations than most countries. He also has faith in good practices by beekeepers, and part of that is monitoring the honey for contaminants. Scott told me that most honey is safe, and he credits that to beekeepers who take a lot of pride in their work. I've learned a lot from Scott. Like, did you know that some crops can't grow without the presence of pollinators? It's true. Crops like almonds, watermelons, pumpkins, all of those require insect pollinators. If we didn't take honeybees to the Central Valley in California every year, then we wouldn't have the almonds uh, that's, that are produced. So almonds 100% require honeybees. But the bees don't live in California. They're transported there, millions of them, from across the country each year. I mean, can you imagine? This is called a queen excluder. So the worker bees are able to come through it, but the queen is too fat to come through it. These bees are from a colony in Lorenzo kept by my new friend and local beekeeper, Nathan Pruitt. Most of the bees on these frames are nurse bees. Nurse bees haven't learned to fly yet. It takes them about 10 days after hatching for them to be strong enough to fly. He's a Texas Tech grad with a really interesting story. Aside from his day job, Nathan installs bee colonies on properties of farmers who need a bit of an extra push for their crop. It's called tumbleweed bees. And this particular farmer is growing strawberries. There she is. She's, she had her head in the... Oh, yeah, I see her. We found the queen. When Nathan graduated from tech, he went on to become a licensed financial agent. And about five years ago, he and his wife planted watermelon in their country garden. And the first year was wonderful. And we expanded the second year. We had so much fun doing it. And what happened was, is my neighbor found out he had a very large beehive under a shed. And this hive was huge. And he had it removed. And the next two years, the crops were terrible. I mean, we were getting melons instead of the size of, you know, I don't know. The traditional watermelons. <laughs> huge watermelons. We were getting the size of a cantaloupe or none at all. Uh, so the like, there was definitely a pollination issue. West Texas isn't exactly the hub for growing almonds or watermelon, but studies show that honeybees can also play a huge role in other crops that are critical to this region. There was a paper published in 2016 that showed improvements in, in uh, cotton and uh, seed cotton weight if the farm maintained wild habitat uh, on the farm. That wild habitat gave nesting sites for bees, for native bees, so they determined that the native bees were helping to move pollen across the cotton flowers, which in, I think it improved the seed cotton weight by about 18%. So that's, a, that's kind of a big deal. So, so, so bees, you know, for some crops, they'll, they'll help the crop. For some crops, they're required of that crop to produce. Did you know that Texas Tech has a Wine Marketing Research Institute? It's a program found in the College of Human Sciences dedicated to strengthening the wine and grape industry in Texas. Tim Dodd is the director, and he's been involved since 1988. The wine marketing research is uh, a lot more of a uh, fun job most of the time, um, but, uh, uh, but I do enjoy uh, the role of uh, being an administrator as well in the, in the college. So if you're having a conversation with somebody who doesn't know anything about the Institute, how do you describe what it is? We really uh, have focused on the business of wine. Originally from New Zealand, Tim did some work there before becoming the Dean of Human Sciences and the Director of the Institute. 
He says it's the constantly growing and evolving world of wine marketing that consumes him. It's really a, um, uh, as I say, a very complex industry, which makes it very interesting for research. <laughs> and so that's what we that's what we love about uh, about being involved in it and uh, and all the, the work we do. In the 80s, Tim says there was a push to begin developing wine in the state of Texas. It was the start of grape growing in rural areas, and wine production surfaced as a potential economic engine. I worked as a research assistant when they were just starting this program here within the College of Human Sciences to help work on the business aspect and the, the wine marketing research uh, component within the university. And so uh, I got involved there and then, uh, as I say, worked several decades now um, in the industry. Most wine grapes grown in Texas are from the High Plains, but a large part of wine production takes place in the Fredericksburg area, somewhere that has become a staple of wine culture. It's not just the wine that's attracting people. This city has lured in tourists, captivating them with an experience. It's the live music, the slow-paced vibe, and in the last few decades, I'm told it's become the second most visited wine tourism destination in the United States, behind Napa Valley. And I think our involvement with that really helped to recognise that wine was something that had so many benefits um, for, for the state in terms of being able to provide jobs, uh, economic growth, uh, taxation, and really gave sort of a new industry to the state of Texas. Tim is constantly wanting to learn more. As areas like Fredericksburg continue to grow, so does his interest. His primary areas of research include things related to tourism. Early on, really, it was, it was a very basic questions like, who are the people visiting the wineries? You know, what is their makeup? What is their interest? You can really start digging down into the motivations and interests of, of people in tourism. And that was really one of the, the first studies we, we did and really has become a sort of at that time, I think, for a new wine industry especially. Some of Tim's research is connected to the Hill Country University Center, a Texas Tech campus designated to wine production. It's about a six-hour drive to Fredericksburg from Lubbock, but I was happy to take that trip for this podcast. The viticulture certificate teaches viticulture, teaches grape growing. All the certificate programs are continuing education unit programs. This is Ed Hellman. He's a professor at the Hill Country campus teaching enology and viticulture. In other words, the study of wines and harvesting grapes for wine production. He explains to me that the viticulture certificate program is not an academic degree. It's pretty much the same rigor as an undergraduate degree, but it's a different audience. Okay. So uh, it's a lot of industry people. It's a lot of entrepreneurs wanting to get into the industry. Ed and Tim are working together in different places, doing different work in perfect harmony. It's research and outreach embodied. The partnership came about as sort of fairly naturally, really. There was, there was interest from the Hill Country folks for, for wine education. There's literally hundreds of wineries there now, and it's become just such a huge center for The Hill Country Center is uniquely set up to meet the needs of wine industry in lots of different ways. Ed sees their work as educational in a way that's immediately useful. So, for example, there's a, a class there in uh, wine analysis. Mm -hmm. So that's a lab class. It's a lab analysis class. And a winery in this area might have somebody that's been working in the cellar for them and kind of helping out a little bit in the lab, but they've never really had any formal training. Mm -hmm. They might send 
an employee like that, just to take that class. He says they've had students with families in the restaurant or wine industry, getting additional certification or specific training. They've had students who just wanted to learn to create or maintain their own personal vineyards. It's a different demographic, so it is a little more streamlined, but there's still more classes they have to take than the very focused certificate program. The average age of a student here is 35 years old, so they're working full-time, they have full-time responsibilities, and this program is allowing them the opportunity to go back to school in a way that's flexible to their life. Both Ed and Tim are excited about how far the wine industry has come, and they look forward to seeing how it'll continue to evolve. Research can be the act of pursuing understanding. It can be specifically for educational purpose, empowering future generations of scholars and academics, or those who may go on to make discoveries of their own. But it can also result in a new product, technology, or application that reaches the market. It can be conducted with something in mind that can become marketable and available to you. And you remember the Office of Research Commercialization, Cameron Smith? That's where people like him come in. So all of the invention that goes on across the Texas Tech system, we work to protect that, usually via patent filing, and then get it out the door and um, out to industry so that it can have some sort of societal impact. His story is next time on the final episode in this season of Fearless. Fearless is produced by the Office of Communications and Marketing in collaboration with the Office of Research and Innovation. It's written and hosted by me, Taylor Peters, and co-produced by Allison Hurth. Editing and sound design by Thomas Boyd. Fearless is a Texas Tech production. From here, it's possible. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more about the characters that you met today or see photos from interviews, log on to our website at today.ttu.edu fearless. And as always, like, review, and subscribe.